Well, that time I didn't even get a chicken leg, so. Well, that's what happens without your, uh, your welcome. It's time for me to go home. Uh, poor, poor pastor has been complaining that he's over the past four days. He should have. It's my fault. And uh, so the complaint starts. Is it? We're good? Okay. All right. Just want to make sure. All right. Well, we haven't exactly done it the way that you probably expected uh, to, uh, to do a, a study of the five solas, but we have uh, two left this evening, and those are uh, the two that refer really, I think, to uh, the application of the grace of God, that is, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, and solus Christus. Now, I do want to, before we start looking at some texts, I have, I have about four texts to try to get through, and that's sort of dangerous, and I know it's a Sunday night, and you've got stuff going on in the morning, and you've got kids and school and all sorts of things like that, so I will try to be as uh, concise as I can be. Um, but uh, I did want to just, just mention, you know, the, the church history professor in me wants to make sure that um, I don't forget the fact that there was a very practical application of both of these solas to the glory of God alone and through Christ alone. Um, there was within the experience of people within the Roman Catholic communion of that day uh, a tremendous amount of diversion from the glory of God and even the glory of Christ that had been introduced over the centuries by the development of Mariolatry and Hagiolatry. Mariolatry, you can figure out. Latruo means to worship something. And so Mariolatry is the worship, or as they would say, veneration of Mary. And Hagiolatry, Hagios is saints, uh, and so to venerate the saints. And Rome has not stopped doing that since the Reformation, by the way. In fact, Rome has defined two major doctrines concerning Mary as dogmas. A dogma within Roman Catholicism is a belief that you must believe by faith to be a faithful Roman Catholic. And uh, since the Reformation, they have uh, defined in uh, 1854 the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that is the idea, by the way, uh, that Mary was conceived without stain of original sin. Um, they, they, I won't go into that right now, but it's, uh, it, it is a, uh, a belief unknown in the early church, certainly unknown in the scriptures. But, uh, and then uh, in the lifetimes of some folks here, uh, in 1950, defined the uh, concept of the bodily assumption of Mary uh, into heaven. Now, it's interesting, they leave it open as to whether Mary died or didn't die. You can believe that she died, you can believe that she didn't die. That's, that's, that's free, but before her body would experience corruption, she was bodily assumed uh, into, uh, into heaven, and that is a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, though let's just be absolutely perfectly honest. Uh, the vast majority of people who call themselves Roman Catholics either don't know about it, don't believe it, don't understand it, uh, but it's there, and uh, there, there you go. There are a lot of very uh, devoted followers of Mary within Roman Catholicism around the world. You go to Mexico, and uh, you will see that Mary is a significantly more central and active figure within Roman Catholic uh, piety in Mexico than Jesus ever could be. 
Uh, that's just the way that it is. But anyway, so uh, then you have, you know, and every single day is the feast day of some saint someplace. Uh, there are just saints galore. Uh, John Paul II was really good at, at, at making new saints. Uh, and uh, uh, they do accept the idea that all Christians are saints in a sense. But then you have this special canonization process uh, that uh, even John Paul II has gone through now. And it's St. John Paul II. Um, that you have to demonstrate uh, uh, miracles that were done in this person's name and, and all the rest of this kind of stuff. There's an entire commission you have to go through. Isn't it great? Uh, there's, there's even, there's even uh, paperwork to become a saint. It's, um, it's wonderful. But anyway, and so there was a, not only did you have the sacramental system that stood between yourself and God, you had the priest uh, who is in his ordination called an altar Christus, another Christ, who has the power uh, through his sacramental ordination to uh, proclaim uh, that uh, this is the body and blood, hocus corpus meum, this is the body and blood of Christ, and through the power of transubstantiation, render Jesus present upon the altar of the Roman church. And, and uh, all of this, this kind of, uh, of stuff that was between the believer and God. And, of course, if you are going to get to heaven in historic Roman Catholic theology, you're not going to stand before God clothed in a seamless robe of righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ. Uh, instead, you're going to get there, and the, the robe of righteousness that is yours is going to be made up of many different sources. And so your righteousness would be that of Christ, and then through what's called indulgences, which remain a valid Orthodox belief within Roman Catholicism, uh, you could have the righteousness of Mary and all of the saints uh, attributed to you. And then you have your own righteousness. When you go to purgatory within Roman Catholicism, you're undergoing something called satis passio, the suffering of atonement. And your own suffering becomes part of the righteousness by which you will stand before God. And so when you really start putting it all together, it is fully understandable why when we look at the theology of the Reformation, we look at the theology of the New Testament, there is an emphasis upon the glory of God alone, not the glory of this saint or that saint or this group of saints or Mary or any other intermediary. The glory of God alone is the focus of the gospel and should be the focus of all the actions of all of mankind. And then when it comes to the means by which God's grace has come to us, uh, it is through Christ alone, his merit alone, his work alone, and any addition to that is a distraction and a betrayal of biblical revelation concerning this particular subject. And so you can understand why there was an emphasis upon these things. And it's not like we've come to a day where, ah, you know, Roman Catholicism, that's sort of over there. We've got other issues. We need some new solas. Well, uh, I'm not sure that I would argue that it isn't appropriate to think about what other uh, solas should be identified in, in Scripture, uh, certainly in light of the rise of humanism, and the rise of, certainly in our day, uh, the idea that you can determine actually who you are physically 
uh, genetically, just simply by an action of your mind. Uh, maybe there, there is a solo we need to come up with in regards to God as creator. Uh, God gets to define that. You don't. Uh, might, be a, might be something we could come up with. But, but really, uh, many of these concepts have greater application just beyond the, the situation at the time of the Reformation in regards to Rome. Um, I think many of these are just as relevant when we make application uh, to situations that we face within the secular culture today. But I like to get into the text of Scripture itself to try to illustrate some of these things. And so I'd like to, um, I normally don't just sort of hit one verse and another verse and another verse, but when you're, when you're doing something topical like this, that sometimes ends up happening. So if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, most of these texts are texts that will illustrate for us not only the centrality of the glory of God, uh, but likewise the, the uniqueness of the person of Christ in bringing about the glorification of the triune uh, God. And, of course, we know Ephesians chapter 1 very well. I'm sure you've worked through it uh, many times before, and it certainly would be Worthwhile to simply walk through Ephesians 1 uh, this evening, but we've got other places to go and, and passages to discuss. But I just want to point out to you, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you start counting in the prologue of Ephesians, you will find in Christ, uh, for example... Uh, at the end of that verse, the one who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and Christo in Christ. And then you're going to see through Christ, in Christ, even that, that one use in verse uh, fa- uh, 6 of in the beloved one. Uh, it's funny, my, uh, my dad, for some reason, was raised in such context where uh, he would always preach, still, uh, uh, pray, he still does pray in King James English. Uh, and so when he prays, there are these and thous and everything else. And that's just this, how he was uh, raised. And uh, so as a pastor, he would refer to the beloved. Beloved, it's wonderful to have you here today. You know, that type of thing. And so when I first remember reading through this text in Ephesians 1, I saw that phrase, in the beloved. And I'm figuring, oh, it's, you know, it's in the church. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a big plural. Uh, no, it's a singular. It's the beloved one that is in Christ. Uh, and in him, in Christ, is going to occur over 10 times in 13 verses. Uh, It is a central element to this. Everything in Ephesians 1 is wrapped up in Christ. In other words, the pressure that we are under as believers to abandon exclusivity and embrace inclusiveness is a temptation to abandon a central aspect of the Christian faith. And that is that God has the right as creator to save as he sees fit, and he is under no pressure whatsoever to adopt other ways of peace to him. I mean, you know, sending your son into human existence to give his life on Calvary's tree. We appreciate that, but you know, could you have worked out some other ways for us, maybe? This is the arrogance that many people have today. The reality is you cannot even begin to read any page of the New Testament without being uh, immediately confronted 
with the fact that there is in God's plan an exclusive mechanism whereby mankind is to be made right with him. It is the only way. If there is another way, then as Paul said to the Galatians, then Christ died needlessly. So this idea that, well, you know, if you want to believe Jesus, that's okay with you, you know, but then there's this other way over here, this other way over there, and it's like we're all going to end up in the same place is not in any way consistent with the teaching and preaching of the, of the Word of God. And so we have to recognize that to hold to what the apostles taught, to hold what Jesus taught, is going to be very, very unpopular uh, when um, judgment falls upon a nation and uh, the humanists take over, and that's what we're seeing, seeing around us. So keep in mind that even though it begins, blessed be the God and Father, and God the Father is the source of all this, the, the means through which we have come to know this and the means through which this has been worked out in time is through Jesus Christ. This is the relationship of Father and Son in what we call the economic trinity, the, the way that Father, Son, and Spirit have chosen to work within the, the created order to bring about salvation each of the divine persons has taken a different role, a different place. And they can be distinguished from one another on that basis. But at the same time, this also does away with the idea that you hear so often, and I can't believe how often this comes up uh, amongst believing people, but the idea that comes up so often amongst people that you have God the Father, and God the Father is the angry, just God. And then Jesus comes along, and he's the nice guy. And he convinces God the Father to be nice to us by dying on the cross. Uh, this is a, a horrific misunderstanding. Uh, it's very common because people sort of mistakenly think, well, you know, God the Father is the God of the Old Testament, and he's constantly striking people down and having the earth open up and swallow people and stuff like that. And that's sort of scary, and so that's God the Father. And then Jesus comes along, and he's, he's a really nice guy, and he holds little babies and lambs and stuff like that. And... Uh, uh, you know, knocks on doors that have no knobs and, and, and that, that kind of thing. And, and so he's convinced God to be nice to us. Um, this is a, a fundamental misunderstanding of everything that is said. The very source uh, and origin is described for us as being in God the Father. It is the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. I mean, it's just almost every page. And, of course, the God of the Old Testament, in case you've missed it, happened to be Jesus. Hello. Um, that's the teaching of the, the New Testament that, for example, in John 12, 41, the one that Isaiah saw sitting on the throne was Jesus. Uh, you, you need to understand that he has been the one who has revealed the Father from the beginning. As John says in John 1, 18, no one has seen God the Father at any time. The unique God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has exegeted him. He has explained him. He has made him known. So, uh, there's just some real problems in, in how people think about things. But the point is uh, that the Father has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. Please notice that he didn't cho choose Jesus, and then you get to choose whether you're in Jesus or not. That is a gross misrepresentation of this text. It's very, very common, but it is not biblical. The direct object of chose is us. He chose us in him, only in Christ. All of election, everything God does is in Christ. In him, before the foundation of the world, with a purpose. And the purpose is so that we might be holy and blameless before him. Now, there's a punctuation variant here. You could have holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us unto adoption. Or you could say holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us unto adoption. I don't know that it really changes a whole lot one way or the other, but I think it's probably to have holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us unto adoption through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he graced us with. It's granted to us, but it's the same root as grace, which he graced us with in the beloved one that is in Christ, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, so on and so forth. And so what I want to emphasize here in Ephesians 1 is that when you ask what is the fundamental purpose, what is the fundamental reason, why does everything turn out the way that it does? Well, we talk about God's sovereignty and we talk about God's purposes. And obviously God has not chosen to reveal uh, everything that, uh, that every purpose that he has. We are mere creatures. We have been given a, an abundance of wealth within his word. But uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And we should be uh, satisfied with what we have. And yet many people uh, become dissatisfied. They want to know more. They want to pry into the secret things of, of God. And uh, God says this far and no farther. But one of the things he has given to us, so, 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 sort of one of the final answers uh, why of, to, to the why question, I think is found here uh, in verses 4 and 5. Unto the praise, it's literally of the, the glory of his grace, but it's, it's descriptive, and so it's his, it's his glorious grace, his glorious grace, the praise of his glorious grace, which he has graced upon us in the beloved one. If you want to see how both Soli Deo Gloria and Solus Christus are intimately related. Uh, there you see it in just one phrase. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has gifted to us, granted to us, graced to us in the beloved one, that is, in the beloved one, Christ Jesus. And so when we ask the big questions, why did this person die and another person did not? Why does that tornado come through and take these lives and not that lives? Why are two people in one room and one person's taken and one person is not? Uh, why does that person over there, uh, who has lived a considerably less godly life uh, than the person over there, why do they have riches and health and ease of life and the godly person has difficulties and sickness uh, we ask these types of questions. We ask them about our own lives. We ask them we see these situations in the lives of others. Um, I certainly uh, will never, ever forget the few years that I, in God's providence, had to work as a hospital chaplain. It is some of the hardest work uh, that you could ever do. It is not the kind of work that I am naturally predisposed to having the capacity to do. I am a Scotsman. Um, we are not huggers, we are not overly emotional, um, we're just generally not the nicest people on the planet, and uh, if you've ever watched Braveheart, that'll explain why. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's the British fault, they, it's what they, the English, they, they just mistreated us for so long that we've lost all of our kindness. Um, 
and uh, we're always hiding Claymore somewhere, uh, just so you know. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I'd have to walk into people's hospital rooms and, um, you know, try to strike up a conversation, and it, it was just not easy work. And I did lead a, a lost support group. Some of you saw when we had the books in the back. I had a little book called um, Grieving Our Path Back to Peace that I wrote a number of years ago that came as a result of all the um, grief counseling and stuff that I, I did there at the, at the hospital. And uh, uh, by the way, that, uh, that book is my uh, second or third best-selling book uh, down through the years, which is amazing. Uh, since most people don't feel like I have a heart, so how could I write something like that anyways? I did write it. Uh, it's, it's not ghost-written, uh, anything like that at all. I did actually write that myself. And uh, uh, I'm really proud of the fact that on September 13th, uh, 2001, they were passing those out by the carton load at uh, Ground Zero in New York uh, to the first, uh, first responders. So that's a little bit early, to be honest with you, but maybe they read them later on when they really needed the, uh, needed the advice that it contains. But anyways... Um, in that work, very often, since it was not a Christian hospital I was employed by, it was a, a secular hospital, uh, there would be many questions asked about the ultimate issues. Why now? Why this person? Why in this way? And we can either try to separate God from the events in his creation, or we can recognize his sovereignty and then recognize his right to do things as he chooses to do them. And when you want to get down to the, the final analysis, the why question is to the praise of his glorious grace. In the final analysis, when everything is laid out, when uh, all the secrets of the hearts of men are laid out and all the intentions and, and all the ignorances we had and how many times we did something because we thought somebody thought one thing and they really weren't thinking that at all. And we thought they had done this, but they hadn't done that. And so we did something stupid because we didn't know. All that kind of stuff is all laid out um, at, the, at the final day. It's all going to be to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, I don't know how, what, how that's going to work in every situation, but we have that promise. And the real question is whether we are going to be submissive enough as creatures to recognize God's a lot bigger than we are. Some of your friends are going by outside there, Derek. Um, um, they probably do that just once in a while just, just to try to interrupt you about preaching. You know, it's just say, hey, you want to do a Derek run tonight? Yeah, sure, okay. Yeah, I think he's preaching about now. Okay, I'll hit the sirens. Woohoo! Here we go. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, in that final, in that final uh, day, there is, there is going to be shown and demonstrated that it was all to the praise of his glorious grace. What, what that also means, it's not to the praise of his glorious power. It's the praise of his glorious grace. His power is utilized to demonstrate his grace. That's a, that's a wonderful message uh, over against the religions of men. Uh, it's certainly a wonderful message over against, uh, for example, the concept of secularism, which can give you nothing, no meaning, no purpose, nothing. Christianity says we have a powerful God. He holds all things together, and he's using that power to demonstrate that he is gracious and merciful. That is a tremendous promise uh, that we have to, to give. So you see that that is in Christ Jesus, in the beloved one. If you want the greatest evidence of God's grace, you want the greatest evidence of God's love, you look to the cross. You look to the empty tomb. You look to the work of Christ. 
Uh, this is Soli Deo Gloria and Solus Christus illustrated for us. But my time is passing very quickly, so just turn over to Philippians. And let me just give you one uh, more. And uh, it's, it's really tough for me to jump into the middle of text and not provide background and everything else. It's just unnatural for me, but I'm going to do my best. And of course, in the middle of a, a text, I love to, uh, to lay open for folks. I did, in fact, a week ago today uh, in, in St. Charles. This is the text that I preached. So if you want to go get the whole context and how this is a wonderful Christmas text, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a Christmas text. It truly is. Uh, that is available online if you want to go see that. But what I want to uh, point to is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, after Christ humbles himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even across death, in verse 8. Therefore also God, and I would say it's appropriate in light of verse 11 to put in parentheses the Father, therefore also God highly exalted him and again gave to him, the same term we just saw over in Ephesians, uh, granted to him, gave to him as a gift, uh, the name, the above all names. Uh, Depending on your translation, this section may be laid out in a poetic form, as poetry. Um, It is in my Greek text laid out that way. Most scholars feel that this is either an early piece of poetry or an early hymn, a fragment of a hymn in the early church. And so it gave to him the name, the above all name. So the most exalted name, in order that at the name of Jesus, so you have anima, which means name, uh, used uh, three different times there in, in, uh, in quick succession to emphasize the name for which Christians suffered. You find this in the early chapters of Acts. Uh, been, been counted worthy to suffer for the name, the name, the name. It's used over and over again. In order that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow uh, of those uh, above the earth and, and uh, those on the earth and under the earth, it's, it's, it's meant to take into the entirety all the cosmology, above, on, under, however you want to order um, the created uh, spheres. Uh, every knee uh, will bow, not just of men, but of angelic hosts, uh, maybe those who've already been condemned, depending on how you want to understand that. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that kurios Jesus Christos, Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we put that Jesus Christ is Lord, but the very first word there is Lord. The emphasis is on Lord. Kurios, Lord, is Jesus Christ unto the glory of God the Father. Now, just in, in, in briefly in passing, you will note that it, it's always, always good. Hopefully, your translation has, a, has notes uh, New American Standard, I'm sure they're changing it, but the New American Standard used to put all Old Testament citations in, in block quotes, uh, or if it was inside a paragraph, and it, and it's in some way indicating that it is an Old Testament citation. Um, what a lot of people miss is that when it says, um, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, this is a quotation. This is being drawn from Isaiah 45:23. It's coming from the Old Testament. You go back to Isaiah 45. This is Yahweh speaking. Uh, This is the God of Israel speaking, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so when you find New Testament writers taking these Old Testament texts and now applying them in the New Testament 
to the revelation God has made of himself in Jesus Christ, you, you really start to see the, 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 the depth of apostolic interpretation and what's really happened. It, it's, it's the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when Paul takes the Shema. The Shema was the, the prayer of uh, the Jewish people that defined the Jewish people. Shema Yisrael Yahweh Eloheinu Yahweh Echad. They would never say that today because they would never say Yahweh, but they would say Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, my Lord. But it, it's not Adonai, it's Yahweh, it's the name of God. Um, Paul takes that defining uh, prayer of the people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And he expands it out in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, so that we now have God the Father as God, and the Lord is Jesus. And so you see in light of the incarnation what revelation has been given. Um, and now the, the Christian people see the, the, the greater, greater fullness. Similar situation here, where you take Isaiah 45, 23, where Yahweh says, every knee will bow to me. And what you have is the perfect balance here. Uh, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so how is Yahweh being made known to the nations? In Christ, in and through the gospel of Christ, in what he has accomplished in his cross, in his burial, his resurrection. Um, And so instead of just Israel bowing the knee, now every knee, uh, of those on the earth and under the earth, all of the created order is bowing the knee at the name of Jesus. Every tongue is confessing. And then, of course, what is the Christian confession? What did Paul say to the Corinthians? No one can say what? Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what you have here. Kurios Jesus Christos. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is Kurios, is Lord. And that's the element of confession is now fulfilled in Christ But that doesn't detract from the glory of God the Father because this was his purpose, unto the glory of God the Father. And so when people say, well, you know, know, my Muslim friends, they say, you you can't have this this idea of uh, of worshiping Jesus without that detracting from the worship of God because they think we have two different gods. Uh, If you really want to see, if you really want to do a study sometime of where to find the ultimate balance on this issue? It's John chapter 5. It's, it's when Jesus has called God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the whole rest of John chapter 5 is Jesus pointing out how he is equal with God and yet is not a competitor with God. You have to honor the son even as you honor the father. But the son does not do anything of himself. He's not off as some, some competing deity doing his own thing. Uh, he does what he sees the father doing. There's perfect harmony between the father and the son. We are monotheists. We believe there's only one true God, but we also believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. There are three divine persons that share the one being that is God. There is no, rate, there is no way to divide that into three gods. There's no way to collapse that down into only one person. We have to accept everything that the scripture says, and we see that here as well. And so once again, to the glory of God the Father, soli deo gloria, there's... That's about as close as you're going to get in Greek uh, to that sola is to the glory of God the Father, soli deo gloria. And yet it is in the confession that kurias Jesus Christos. There's solus Christus. So in, 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 at least in my text here in the Greek, it's two lines because it's, again, poetic. But in, in one part of a sentence, you basically have these two solas right next to each other. 
Um, and that it's not that Rome had denied this. It's just that Rome had lost sight of these things in light of all the other extraneous stuff and traditions that had, had come in and, uh, and taken over. And so once you have that, that mindset, you start to see just how prevalent this way of thought is uh, throughout uh, the New Testament. If you'd like a, new, a, a gospel example of this that I will not go to right now because we just don't have time to do it, but if you want a gospel example of this, then Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. Um, hard to beat uh, something like that as a tremendous illustration of both Soli Deo Gloria, the focus that, uh, that uh, well, I'm out of time. Uh, John, uh, just, just really quickly, just, just one illustration of this in John chapter 17. I think is really neat. And that is right at the beginning of verse 5. Um, and now, glorify me, Father, together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so, think about what that's saying. Um, you have the prayer, glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory that I had at your side I possessed glory in your presence. So it's before the very creation of the world. It's the glory that I possessed in your presence at that time. Not only does this clearly demonstrate beyond all shadow of a doubt that the Son is a distinct person from the Father. These are pronouns that he's using uh, that one person would use and another person, this one person referring to another person, referring to a period of time beforehand where the two existed together, had a relationship, et cetera, et cetera. But theologically, when we think of uh, what's going on here, here the son is recalling that period of time uh, when he had that glorious preexistence uh, with the father. That's the glorious preexistence that he lays aside for the benefit of us in Philippians chapter 2, makes himself of no reputation. Um, and yet he recognizes his own glorious state at that time, which is something you see, for example, in the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, when the Father and the Son uh, are together, that glory that is inherently the Son's is seen, which is veiled during his earthly, uh, his earthly time. And only at that one point in time when the discussion of what? Of his soon coming sacrifice in Jerusalem and his uh, death, burial, and resurrection are being discussed. Uh, that is the only time that that glory is actually seen in the presence of Moses and Elijah. Uh, who, by the way, while most people think Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets there, that, and that's, I think that's an appropriate understanding, there's also one other thing that to Moses and Elijah shared in common. They didn't die naturally on this earth. They were taken up. And it's talking about Jesus is being taken up. So isn't it interesting he's having a conversation with, with two of the ancient uh, saints that God himself had taken up uh, in, a, in a similar fashion, which is fascinating to me. But anyway, so we have uh, that type of thing going on. You can find numerous examples of it. You go to Matthew chapter 11. There's places you could go. In the Gospels, some people say, ah, you know, you're just going to Paul and stuff like that. Well, okay, Paul did say some cool things about it, and I do believe it's Scripture, so uh, it's okay to go there. But uh, let's, let's run quickly, because uh, time is, is brief, to Hebrews chapter 7. Um, and uh, 
just briefly, this tremendous text in verses 24 to 25, again, illustrating both a section of Hebrews that is arguing the supremacy of Christ and his priesthood um, over against the old priesthood, and which where the old priests are prevented from the continuation of their ministry by death. And so, in contrast to those old priests mentioned in verse 23, but, uh, be, but because he abides forever, he has his priesthood operabaton, uh, permanently, and hence, because the conversation is about passing the priesthood on from one generation to generation, without a successor. Jesus does not have a successor. He does not pass his priesthood on to a bunch of priests today. Uh, anything along those lines, he holds his priesthood forever without a successor. Therefore, because of which also, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, forever, pantelas, totally, the ones coming to God through him, because he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, again, this is a, a text worthy of an entire uh, unpacking and, um, and sermon in and of itself. But what we see, again, just as we saw in Paul, and my theory on Hebrews really quickly is that this is a sermon Paul preached in Hebrew that was rendered in Greek by Luke, because the style is Luke's, the theology is Paul's. Um, but, so, this could have been Paul. The fact of the matter is, as Luther said, the author of Hebrews is known to God and God alone, uh, which is a nice way out of having to answer that question. But what you have here uh, is you have this assertion that Jesus, as the, the perfect high priest, the high priest went in and offered the blood on the altar on Yom Kippurim, the Day of Atonements, and uh, he then had to leave. There was no seat in the, in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, literally. Uh, there was no seat for him to sit there. He, he offered, and then he had to leave. It only happened once per year. Jesus enters in, and since he is the offering and is accepted by God, then he sits down at the right hand of God, waiting for these enemies who made a footstool for his feet. The work is completed. And so his very presence is an act of intercession. His finished work in behalf of those who are united to him. Uh, this is how God the Father can look at us. He looks at us through Christ. We, he sees his righteousness. That's how we have peace with him. It's all because of the finished work of Christ. And so it is said, because of that situation, he is able. That term dunatai is the very term that's used when, when, for example, Jesus says, we are not able to come to him. Same term. Udunatai, not able. He is dunatai, able to save, not just to try to save, You've got to make, make up your mind whether you're going to have a Savior who actually saves or a Savior who only makes salvation a possibility. He is able to save to the uttermost, completely. I mean, this is really a dividing line between man-centered concepts of salvation and God-centered concepts of salvation. You just have to make your choice. Either you're going to have a Savior who can actually save, and therefore you should glorify Him and you don't get to take any of the credit for yourself. Or if you prefer, you can have a Savior who tries to save, and you get to take part of the credit because he's trying to save everybody equally, and the reason you get saved is because you did something that somebody else didn't do. 
Two different things, two different things. He is able to save completely a certain people, the ones coming through him to God. Now you might say, ah, see, there it is. We have to do the coming. There is the human part. The problem is, if you are following the illustration the writer of Hebrews is using, he's talking about those who have come to the temple on the day of Yom Kippurim. They, they, are, they, are they are passively there. They were actually commanded, all of Israel was commanded to come. But the idea that, well, it's your coming that adds something to what Christ is doing. No, there was a specific people. There were certain people that could not come to the temple. There are certain people that could not come to the temple. Uh, the Egyptians couldn't come to the temple in Yom Kippurim. The Babylonians couldn't come to the temple in Yom Kippurim. It is supposed to be the covenant people who utilize that which God has provided, the means God has provided, to come before him. Now, we know not all, not, not all of Israel did this. But the point is that there are people who are following God's plan. They are believing what God has said, that this offering and sacrifice is what is pleasing to him. They have come into that place, and the only way that they can have forgiveness before God is what God does and what God has established. And the point here is he is able to save those people. I think this is a parallel to John 6, 37, where, where Jesus said, all the Father gives me will come to me. The one coming to me I'll never cast out. This is the will of the Father, that of all he's given me, I lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. Similar concept being enunciated here in Hebrews. And so there is a specific people that the Son is able to save completely. And why is he able to do this? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, no matter what else you do with this text, always keep one thing in mind. Jesus intercedes for a very specific people. He intercedes for a very specific people. A lot of people don't think about this. They are willing to confuse the extent of the atonement on the cross and forget about the fact that the people for whom Christ dies are the exact same people for whom he intercedes. It's one work. And so if you want to envision the idea that many people have, that Jesus is busily interceding for people who will never be saved, that he is before the Father seeking the salvation of those who will languish in eternity under the wrath of God, if you want to introduce that inconsistency into the Godhead itself, that's up to you to do. I'm not going to do it because it's not a biblical concept. Why is he able to save completely? Because he always lives to make intercession for them, which means his intercession can bring about full salvation. If you have to add something to that, then you are fundamentally destroying the message of the perfection of the saviorhood of Christ. And so, once again, we see intercession, it's all to the glory of God. It's the power of Christ. Here you really have soli deo gloria, but you have a focus upon solus Christus. The only way. He's the only one who always lives to make intercession. There's nobody else. No one else can fit into this category in any way, shape, or form. But one more. Let's go to the apocalypse. I was recently at um, Tel Megiddo. Uh, so you go up on the top of this... Uh, Megiddo has been, the city has been destroyed 25 times down through human history. Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Um, it's been, been destroyed 25 times down through history. And so there's this huge mound because they just keep rebuilding it on top and building it on top and so on and so forth. So you can get up pretty high and you can see out across the valley. Uh, and so if you're up on the top, 
You're up on the mountain of Megiddo, which is what? Har Megiddo, Armageddon. Uh, so I was up, I was at Armageddon uh, looking out across the valley, and I took a picture uh, on my cell phone. I sent it, I put together a little uh, group back home, uh, family members and friends of my pictures in Israel, and uh, I said, uh, hey, guess where I am? I'm at Armageddon. Don't worry, it's all peaceful today. <laughs> so everything's cool. We're, we're okay. Uh, all, all is well for today, anyways. So um, yeah, uh, the apocalypse uh, and Armageddon and all that stuff, we're not going to be dealing with that. I want you to uh, look at uh, the picture that is given to us in Revelation 4 and 5. For example, in regards to the heavenly worship uh, that takes place in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, for example, uh, day and night unceasingly before the throne, you have holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was and who is and is to come. Uh, right here, a, a confirmation. Because where have we heard this before? That's Isaiah 6. That's the content of Isaiah 6. And so what we're seeing in Revelation is nothing has changed. Yes, there has been great revelation of God. There has been the incarnation, everything else. But, but even though entire dynasties and nations and kingdoms have risen and fallen, uh, God is still being worshipped upon his throne. Nothing has, has changed. And so uh, this worship is going on. And then uh, before the throne, you see in verse 11, worthy are you, uh, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor. It's literally the glory and the honor and the power. Uh, for you have created all things, and through your will they were, and they stand created. They continue to exist by your, the extension of your creative power. And so you have a, a brief picture in chapter 4 of the worship that is directly uh, reflected in the visions that we have in the Tanakh, in the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, uh, of God in the Old Covenant. But it doesn't stop there. Instead, something else takes place. We have the little scroll, and, and who is worthy to, to, to take the scroll? And then we are introduced to the Lamb. And the lamb is standing as if slain. Standing as if slain. Now that in of itself is a, uh, that's in verse 6. And there are so many uh, pictures given to us in uh, the Revelation that are meant to strike us in their contradiction. Um, Anybody who has seen sacrifice take place, most of us are way too squeamish to really uh, watch it take place, but uh, it, it happened all the time. Uh, anyone who knows the, the slitting of that throat knows that uh, lambs do not stand having been slain. Uh, this is a, obviously meant to communicate something to us, that he would be standing as a slain means he has been resurrected, of course. Uh, in the same way, Later on, in just a few chapters, uh, people are going to be calling for the rocks to fall upon them and the mountains to hide them from the what? From the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. 
That is also meant to catch our attention, say there's something going on here. Listen, uh, think, ponder as to what's going on here. And so we have this, this lamb standing as a slain who has overcome, and he takes the book, and he is worthy. And then they sing a new song, beginning in verse 9. Worthy are you to receive the, the Biblion, the little Bible, the little book, uh, and to open its seals. Um, why? What has he done? Because he has, has, has redeemed and sealed uh, a, a people to God. How? In your blood. And so that slain part is important, but now he's alive. So it is a, a giving of a life followed by a resurrection as being uh, presented here as this lamb. By your blood, you have redeemed to God uh, a, a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. If you want the extent of the salvific work of God, if you want to see the extent of his decree to save, it is to save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It almost seems to me today there are some people uh, that will read this and go, yeah, but is it the exact same number of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Because God needs to be held accountable to this because we need to examine this. That is up to God. I do not understand this today. I mean, how do you read the Old Testament and go, well, obviously God saved the exact same number of Jews as he did Egyptians. Really? Try to convince Pharaoh of that. Try to convince Pharaoh's army as the, as the walls of the water come in to kill them and drown them, uh, that God is under some, uh, some constraint uh, in, his, uh, in his mercy and his grace to give his mercy and his grace to everybody on the exact same level. That's what mankind... It really seems, especially in our country, that we think that God is somehow under constitutional constraint. Um, That is not the case. There were nations that rose and fell and people died and their, their, their bones have moldered in the ground... Uh, while God was intent upon bringing a remnant out of the people of Israel. I'm sorry, my Lord believed the Old Testament. I am not going to explain those things away. He said that was the word of God, and the word of God says God has the right to do that. And if you don't understand the entirety of the Bible and the fact that he is just and he's righteous and we are sinners, and God could just simply just say, you know what, I'm going to bring my judgment to bear right now on any one person, then you're not really going to understand what the message of the Bible is. And if you think that God's under some, some constraint um, to uh, submit himself to our examination of these things, you've missed the point. Uh, by his blood, he has made them uh, to our God a, a kingdom and priests that they might reign upon the earth. Uh, this is God's grace and mercy demonstrated. And we only show ourselves to be significantly less aware of the reality of our own sin and the justice of God and his wrath against sin when we dare to, instead of being amazed that he would save anyone, go, well, he needs to give everybody the same chance. (laughs) As if it's a chance that we're talking about. You do not want justice from God. You want mercy from God. And he is in charge of that. No one gets injustice from God. 
Everyone will either get justice or mercy. Those are the only two options. There's, there's nothing else. There's no injustice. Because of what Christ does, there's no injustice. But you want the mercy part. You don't want the justice part. If you know your own heart and you know the holiness of God. And so here in chapter 5 then, you have this new song being sung. And the work of the Lamb is being honored and is being laid, laid out. And what he has accomplished and you see the entire myriad and myriad of angels, they begin uh, to come together. Uh, and uh, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive uh, power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing in, in um, uh, verse 12. And uh, this time of year, I almost start singing that because it's uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully for everybody in here, you'll take the time between now and Christmas to at least listen to the first half of the Messiah. Uh, because uh, if, there is, there, if there is ever anything written uh, by mankind that should be considered for the uh, position of 28th book of the New Testament, uh, I think uh, it, it probably should be the Messiah. Because it's all Scripture anyways. I mean, all the words are straight out of Scripture. But my goodness, what an amazing, amazing piece of music that is. And, and uh, you're, if you, like me, know it is uh, like the back of your hand, uh, you know exactly where that text came from. Um, uh, power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, by the way, I was going to mention this when I got up here. Sorry about this. I'm getting old, so I can just jump anywhere I want to and nobody cares. Um, you sang a hymn earlier, and I'm wondering how many of you understood what you were singing. Now, it was the newer version of it. You know, it's sort of the, uh, let's throw in a few extra verses that, uh, that are new. But um, you sang a, a word, and I'm wondering if you know what it meant. Uh, how many of you thought that here I raise my Ebenezer had something to do with a guy named Scrooge? <laughs> Have you ever explained what an Ebenezer is to everybody? Oh, good. I hope so. I want to make sure. See, he remembered. How many else remembered my explanation of that song? See, you are the only one that remembered. Yeah. Okay, we've got one more back there. Okay. Whenever you sing that song, it's a beautiful song, but I want you to understand how to sing it, what it means, because why sing something where you're going, I'm not sure how Ebenezer got in here, but hey, it's up on the screen, so I'm going to do it. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> First of all, if you're standing near me, my children will warn you that I do not say, I do not say Ebenezer. It's Evan Eitzer. Evan Eitzer. It's a Hebrew phrase. Evan Eitzer means stone of help. Stone of help. And if you remember your Old Testament, you know, for example, uh, you know, Jacob will, build, will pile up stones when he sees the ladder because he's, he's putting a monument out that God has helped him in this situation. He has met God here. And so people would, would set up stones at a certain place to remind them, this is where I received help from God. So here I raise my Ebenezer means, and hither by thy help I've come, Right? And so the whole idea is, uh, here I am putting up a monument that it's by the help of God that I've come to this point. That's what an Ebenezer is. And so if you, if you really want to sing it right and don't worry about the people around you, uh, then say, say, while they're going, Ebenezer, uh, you can go, Ebenezer, and everybody's going to go, he's weird, but you're going to be singing it right. So just for some reason, it just reminded me of that. I needed to make sure to, uh, to get that in there. I've... Uh, it's, it's my little way of trying to advance meaningful hymnology around the world. So 
I've explained that all over the place, though in some places they don't sing that song because they don't know what an Evan Acer is anyways. But uh, there you go. So I, it just reminded me because of the, uh, the Messiah. Then notice verse 13. And every created thing in the heavens and upon the earth and under the earth and upon the seas uh, and everything in them, all of them I heard saying. And so I'm not sure how you could more fully expand out the idea this is all of creation. All of creation says, to the one seated upon the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and strength forever and ever. Four living creatures were saying amen, and the, uh, the elders fell down and they worshiped. I mean, here is picture of worship in heaven, and now what has it become? In chapter 4, it looks just like it did in the Old Testament, but something has happened. And that something is seen in the coming of the Lamb, the Lamb that has been slain but is now alive, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now, in light of that, all of creation says to the one seated upon the throne and to the Lamb. You can't skip that. If you're going to make Jesus a mere creation like the Muslims do, like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, this is contradictory. If he's created, then he should be joining in with this. But he is the object of the blessing and the honor and the glory forever and ever that is laid out by all created things that are worshiping God. Here is full Christian worship now in light of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so you have Soli Deo Gloria in chapter 4 and chapter 5, but now it is seen to be Solus Christus through Christ. You see the relationship between them and how central this is to an understanding of the Christian view and vision of, of the future. And so, so many other texts we could look at, but these will give you hopefully at least a beginning uh, to consider uh, how important these particular uh, concepts are. And so as we think about the five solas, we have seen that they really cover, they, they really are simply principles uh, that we can find laid out in Scripture and that the tendency of mankind is to draw away from the fullness of the revelation of God. We're always trying to find some, some way of, of getting either around what's in his Scripture or adding to it or diminishing its authority uh, we're always trying to find ways of inserting ourselves into salvation so that we end up diminishing God's grace, adding to faith. We always see man's religions in some ways adding things that detract from the soul glory of God, from the soul centrality of Jesus Christ as Savior. And so these solas remain absolutely relevant to us uh, today. They are valid principles because they are, they are derived from Scripture itself. And so... Uh, you know, I know there's lots of T-shirts you can buy with the five solas and stuff like that, but I would like to suggest if you're wearing a T-shirt with the five solas on them, you might want to know some biblical texts to go along with them uh, because that, that sola scriptura one would sort of indicate that might be a good idea uh, unless you are making the reformers an additional source of revelation or something like that, which they would not have appreciated in any way, shape, or form and probably would have... Um, excommunicated you at, 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 the minor, at the minor end of things, or maybe even worse, if you had ever done anything around them. So uh, hopefully this study has been uh, useful to you. 
between uh, Phil Johnson and myself, we've now given uh, the pastor a number of Sundays off. So I would, I don't know about the rest of you, but I would be expecting some really good stuff in Romans once January gets here, you know, um, uh, hold him, hold him to the, you're going to hold him to the fire. I mean, he's had some time off, you know, uh, so, uh, so he better, better put his best preaching boots on. Uh, he keeps telling me they're the most uh, comfortable uh, footwear in the world, and uh, I keep trying to tell him, uh, if you tried to wear those things consistently in July in Phoenix, um, the result would probably be a form of madness, uh, <laughs> because uh, I have tried. I even tried just a little half boots, and you cannot do it uh, when the pavement is approximately 175 degrees. Uh, you just got to have that, that air moving around uh, or you're going to die. Uh, and so uh, that's just, just how it works. But uh, I did find him a wonderful picture of a, a pair of boots that are made out of running shoes with boots on them. So um, you call, what'd you, what'd you call them? Kenny Llamas. Kenny Llamas. Kenny Llamas. Uh, so we'll have to see if we can't track some of them down next time you can go running with me. Uh, because he won't wear anything other than them, those, those, those boots. But uh, it's been good to be with you once again. I guess we've been sort of doing this about every three years or so, I guess it's sort of averaged out. Uh, I'm sort of uh, tracking this by, uh, what's her new name tonight? Uh, what was uh, What was it? Ella Bella. Ella Bella, by Ella Bella in the back, who's now hiding because I'm pointing to her during the sermon. But um, uh, I have a series of pictures uh, with her. Uh, now, and uh, she just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and I just keep getting older and uglier, so uh, it's just sort of how, how that works, but it's averaged out to about th- three years, I would say, along, along lines, so that's, uh, that, that's pretty good, so who knows when the Lord will uh, bring us back here again, uh, hopefully before she's driving, anyways, uh, we'll be able, to, be able to work that out, but I appreciate your uh, kindness toward me. Uh, let's uh, close our time with a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we do thank you for your word, the freedom that we have had to look into it. Uh, We cannot help, Lord, but as we have considered such lofty things this evening, we have seen uh, your worship in eternity past, we've seen your worship in heaven. Uh, Lord, we know that when we worship you here upon earth, uh, it is but a faint reflection of what we're going to experience in the future, and yet you're pleased with that, you send your spirit Uh, to prompt our hearts to engage in that kind of worship. We thank you for that. We thank you for the church, and we thank you for your word. We would ask that uh, we would remember the things that we have learned, that this would uh, equip us to be better servants of yours in a a very dark time in this nation as we see uh, many who are evil promoting their evil around us and uh, even trying to force this evil upon others. May we be faithful witnesses. May we be those who will count the cost of discipleship. Uh, Bless this church and its witness here uh, in this city, Uh, not only here but through online uh, abilities uh, to to spread the word to other places as well. Bless your church all across this, uh, this state, this nation, this world. Be with your people as we seek to be faithful to you. Uh, Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.